As we always say in cybersecurity, it's not a matter of if you will be hit, it's a matter of when you will be hit. And so we definitely would encourage organizations to take stock of their posture and their practices. You're listening to KBcast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Sarah Sloan, Head of Government Affairs and Public Policy, ANZ, for Palo Alto Networks. And today, we're talking about cyber reforms and what we can expect for Australia. Sarah, thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Wonderful to be with you. I've heard that you're quite the expert in the space, so I'm really keen to sort of dive on into what's happening out there. It's, it's been a little bit of a wild west lately, so I really want to demystify maybe a lot of the questions that people have in the space. So firstly, I want to start with what's happened recently in the media, which I guess has prompted the cybersecurity minister, Claire O'Neill, to push government to create a big reform project around the recent cyber events. So talk to me about your view on this. Yeah, no worries. So what we've seen is the largest non-data breach in Australian history with the details of up to 9.8 million Optus customers being effectively stolen. And there's a couple of things that are really significant or interesting about this breach. The first here is the size or the volume of the breach. As I said, up to 9.8 million Optus customers or an estimated 40% of Australians have been impacted by this particular incident. The second thing here is the nature of the breach itself. So we heard the Minister for Cybersecurity, Claire O'Neill, come out and say that she didn't believe this was a particularly sophisticated attack and that the incident itself was fairly basic, I think was the wording that she used there. So based off public reporting, we know or we understand that this data was exposed to the internet via what's called an API. It's public-facing, essentially open to anyone who was connected and interacting on the internet, and it didn't require any authentication. So you weren't required to log in, have any credentials or anything like that to access this particular data. So that's been a particularly significant factor in this incident. The third thing here is the nature of the information itself. So the information that has been taken here includes things like names, date of birth, phone numbers, email addresses, and in some cases, your driver's license, Medicare detail, and passport details. So pretty sensitive, personally identifiable information that has been taken and that data is gone. We're not going to be able to get it back. It's gone and it has some very significant implications, both in the more immediate, but also the longer term. So if you think about the nature of the information there being used to do things like open bank accounts in your name, affect your postal, your mail, these kind of things committing fraud and identity of obviously concern in the immediate and longer term because that information doesn't necessarily change. Your date of birth doesn't necessarily change, your name doesn't necessarily change, and those things are used to identify you across all of our economies. So it means really that we all need to be forever really vigilant of what this attack may mean or this breach may mean for the future. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And you're absolutely right. Claire O'Neill did say it wasn't sophisticated at all. And I mean, there has been speculation, some high-level reporting. I mean, Optus haven't come out yet with a full breakdown of what specifically happened, but I think conceptually it wasn't overly sophisticated. So you absolutely are right on that front. So one of the things I really want to hear from you today, Sarah, is 
You've touched on the fidelity of the breach, the, the size of the breach. Yes, it is the largest breach in Australian history. Do you think that if this breach didn't happen, we would be looking at cyber reforms at the moment? Do you think it had to get to this level for people to start paying attention? Yeah, I think we would still be looking at cyber reforms. And the reason I say that is because we have a couple of things that are kind of in the fire, as you will. So on the two real pieces of legislation that are relevant to this conversation, the first is the Privacy Act. And we've seen the government come out and signal that they're looking at the Privacy Act, which is the most appropriate and the most significant piece of legislation when it comes to articulating Australia's expectations around how we manage data, and we, as in all of Australia, are responsible for securing that data and managing that data, and then the penalties associated with having a breach occur. So the government's signaled there that they will look at that piece of legislation, and that has been a body of work that has been in the background for some time now. I'm expecting that will be, I guess, given a little bit more kind of fuel to the fire there, and we might see a quicker turnaround on some of those reforms following this particular incident. But we've also had some really good building blocks and foundations have been laid over the last couple of years. If we look back at the last cybersecurity strategy, which was a billion-dollar investment there, initiatives like Red Spies, which is funding for the Australian Signals Directorate to enhance their capability, that was up to, I think it was close to $10 billion. And then we've seen reforms across critical infrastructure with the Securing Critical Infrastructure Act being amended on two occasions over the last two years. And those reforms really, quite in the early stages, a lot of the provisions haven't actually come into legal force yet or are in the process of newly being implemented. So there are some significant reforms underway and we're just expecting to see those get more kind of traction awareness and more focus, I think, from government. So do you think, unfortunate as it sounds, that because of this incident, there's, there's sort of been a bit of a silver lining, like it's, it's rapidly increased sort of Claire O'Neill sort of coming out front quite, you know, intensely by saying this is what we need to do as a nation I mean, to help protect Australians and, and consumers that have been impacted by this breach. So do you think that to some degree it's, it's helped move things along in terms of the velocity? Yeah, I think what the government's really done and it is very welcome, is shown that it is interested in continually improving and enhancing our security resilience as well as our data management practices. And I think that's something that we always should do when we see experience a breach of this magnitude. It is important that, you know, not just government, but citizens also ask, are our legislation, our policy, our regulations, are they fit for purpose? And are they enough to respond to these incidences? Do they then the expectations that we have? So I think in some ways, yes, you're right. We have seen this renewed energy come from the government around looking at some of these legislation and assessing whether they are fit for purpose and meeting the needs for the nation. Do you think as well that people just want some type of accountability from companies like Optus and large telcos? Because, you know, they haven't necessarily like similar to a fin services, they don't have an APRA body there. So do you think this is going to force them to be a little bit more one compliant, but also two, give responsibility and account accountability back to their clients? Yeah. So I think the telco sector and ISPs have been regulated to some degree through the Telecommunications Act. And you would maybe recall the TSSR reforms, the Telecommunications Sector Security Reforms that were passed. So there has been some regulation of this sector 
with respect to security. And now I guess that's even more kind of built out and furthered through provisions under the Securing Critical Infrastructure Act. And I think, yeah, there will be this renewed focus on do we have those accountability measures? Are they fit for purpose? Are they reasonable? Are they proportionate? And do they reflect community expectations around how companies like this store and manage our data? Yeah, most definitely. So would you say, Sarah, because of recent events, this is a big wake-up call to corporate Australia? Now, I ask this because I was literally speaking to a SISO this morning and he was like, you know, the last few weeks we've been on a tangent because of what's happened in the media to make sure that we're checking all of our stuff as well to make sure we are not the next optus. Do you think people over the last few weeks have quietly been like checking their checking their backs, checking their staff, making sure things are good because they don't want to be in that position? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think there are lessons here for everyone and you can bet your bottom dollar that that's not the only exposed data set sitting out there on the internet at the moment. So as we always say in cybersecurity, it's not a matter of if you will be hit, it's a matter of when you will be hit. And so we definitely would encourage organizations to take stock of their posture and their practices. And in particular, I guess a couple of things come to mind. So one is encouraging organizations to have that review of roles, responsibility and culture. So does your organization have those clear lines of accountability and responsibility for cybersecurity? Um, do you have a SISO, for example? Do they have a voice to the board or a voice to executives and leadership? Are you investing in cybersecurity and creating a culture of cybersecurity within your organization? We'd also, following this, would encourage organizations to consider review of their practices and procedures. So, for example, do a self-assessment against key international risk management standards, such as ISO 27001. Consider whether you need to update your incident response plans. As many of us know out there, it's stressful enough to be responding to an incident and developing out these processes in the heat of the moment. But, you know, it's best to be well prepared and make sure that you understand who needs to be notified and when. So looking at some of those incident response plans and updating them. And then the final thing really there is a conversation around technology and what it can do and how it can support your organization going forward. You know, it, it's a pretty hostile cyber threat landscape out there. And there is a role for technology in responding to incidents in real time and helping organizations understand their posture through the eyes of an adversary. So working with, you know, inside your organization to understand that, working with trusted partners to understand the role of technology and your organizational plans there. So Sarah, based on what you know in terms of the cyber reforms, what's sort of happening, how things are going to change specifically to telcos, do you think it's quite fair in what's going to happen? Or do you think that maybe some of these measures because of what's happened are going to be quite draconic? Or do you think it's quite an even playing field now to keep telcos accountable and to provide, I guess, you know, responsibly back to their clients? But of course, I'm obviously neutral in these positions and I'm looking at all sort of angles here. I think it's a interesting question to be asking. I think when it comes to developing legislation and policy, it's really important that government works with the industries that are going to be affected by any change. So in this instance, it's super important that the government consults with all those industries that have any equities with respect to the privacy legislation there. In terms of the conversation around penalties and whether they're going to be too strict, I mean, it's hard to say now. We don't really know where the government's thinking and there'll be more, well, to my understanding, there'll be more details revealed over the coming weeks and months. But one thing we have heard and seen is the minister talk about aligning things like the scope, the practices and procedures and the penalties there 
with international best practice. So there's clearly an appetite there to review how our privacy legislation in particular sits compared to some of those international kind of legislation or best practices there. When we're looking at penalties, I think not only do we need to be mindful that they're reasonable and proportionate, but we also need to be mindful of creating incentives for industries. Yes, penalties can in some cases lead to changes of culture and changes of behaviour, but equally incentives play a really important role in changing those cultures and practices across the private sector as well. Can you give an example of what the incentives may look like? Could be things like if you're implementing best practice with respect to cybersecurity standards, these kinds of measures could be incorporated into the various privacy regulations. So I want to maybe know from you, Sarah, why haven't the government enforced sub-provisions on private companies historically, like as what they're sort of doing now like with the Optus breach? Is it because like they've got other fish to fry, they're trying to get their head above the water and focus on other things, and now they've had to address it because like you sort of said in, in the earlier part of the interview, largest breach, biggest breach in Australia, they had to do something. They couldn't just sit back and say, oh, it'll be right, we'll wait till the dust settles. Like, if they didn't do something, people would be out, outraged. So I'm just curious to know, do you have any sort of theory as to why now we have to wait until something this huge until we start doing things like with the government? Like what, like, I don't understand, like, why did it have to get this bad before we move? I don't think that's that we haven't been moving. I think the government has been taking measures and steps to improve their cybersecurity posture to improve our data practices as a country. And we have made a series of changes to our legislation. So on the privacy front, as I kind of was getting to before, we've seen the introduction of a notifiable data breaches scheme, which was an amendment to the Privacy Act back in, I think, 2017. And we have seen over the course of the last couple of years, conversations and iterations looking at the Privacy Act and whether it is fits a purpose, whether it aligns with international best practice. And those are some really important conversations for us to be having as a nation. And the breach that we've seen recently will just feed into that. And I think it's a really good, as I said, adds a bit of momentum behind these changes and continues that conversation and really has been this opportunity for government to road test whether these privacy acts and the proposed reforms that they're looking at are going to meet the challenge that we have going forward. So I think it's not that the government hasn't been doing anything. It's that we've been collectively looking at this thing. And another thing there is that, of course, with legislation and policy, these do take time. You wouldn't want governments rushing in and making changes on the fly. You want them to consult, consider all possibilities, talk to industry, talk to who it affects, talk to who it doesn't affect, make sure that they've really considered all possibilities. With the other kind of piece of legislation that's really relevant here, the Critical Infrastructure Act, as I said, that has been underway and has been reviewed extensively over two years, been the subject of much consultation, and that is still being implemented. So we wouldn't want government to necessarily shift the goalposts now. There is only just, the, the legislation only just passed in, I think it was April this year. So we want to give industry enough time to implement the various obligations, make sure their practices align, invest in the security tools, which will help them meet the legislation before we see any consideration of changing the particular provisions in the Act. So you mentioned before that there's a lot of industry alignment with government to ensure that we're doing the right thing, we've got the right barometer, all, you know, checks and balances, all that type of stuff. 
you have any sort of industry insights or what are the sort of things that people have been saying to you or what's like word on the street? What are people's thoughts out there? As with any kind of talk about legislation and policy, everyone has very different thoughts and opinions around how we can respond to this particular kind of breach and and what that means for our legislation. I think overall there is a view that aligning with GDPR, the EU's privacy like regulations, is a good idea and the more we can move towards that, the better we'll be. That's definitely one view that that has come up there. And then the general kind of view that, you know, would be great to kind of kick off the consultation around the Privacy Act. We saw the AIIA come out, I think it was only last week, perhaps, calling on the government to release the second or the third iteration of the Privacy Act and, and looking to engage with government on those particular provisions there. They also did note that the critical infrastructure reforms were only recently, you know, kind of passed through both houses of parliament and that they would encourage the government also to exercise caution there with moving or changing those particular regulations when industry is still implementing them. So would you say that GDPR is likely to be implemented here in Australia from your experience and what you're sort of hearing? Yeah, I guess that's really one for government. I think what I'm hearing and seeing is an interest from industry to align with global practices such as GDPR, but we'll have to wait and see. So Claire O'Neill comments that we're five years behind cybersecurity in Australia. Now, what do you believe can be done to ensure that we're not five years behind moving forward? Yeah, big question. And I could talk about this one for a while, but I think we've got some really great foundations here in Australia when it comes to cybersecurity. We do have, you know, several cybersecurity strategies that we've iterated on, we've built on, we've enhanced. We've got the 2020 cybersecurity strategy, which had, I think, one point something billion attached to it. We have the investment in ASD and ThreadSpice, and now we've got these reforms. So we've got some, you know, great foundations. We now have a cybersecurity minister who sits in cabinet. So we've had a cybersecurity minister before, but we've not had one who sits in cabinet. So that presents itself a really phenomenal opportunity for someone like Minister O'Neill to come in, review where we're at and be able to change and enhance our security resilience there. In terms of where we need to kind of go and what we need to do in order to ensure that we're not five years behind moving forward, I think an emphasis on hardening our national cyber posture is very important. So implementing those critical infrastructure reforms, reviewing those critical infrastructure reforms so that, you know, we continue to look at whether they are fit for purpose, whether we need to adjust the standard that we're asking critical infrastructure to meet, for example, and how we can better support critical infrastructure in meeting some of those requirements. And one area that we might want to consider looking at is is providing further guidance on technical and operational matters such as zero trust. We've seen in the US, obviously, Biden releasing an EO on zero trust and the importance of adopting a zero trust posture. We've also seen a lot of traction in the US around things like attack surface management and the importance of understanding your environment through the eyes of the adversary. So looking at how we can build out there. The second thing I would flag is we could look at things like supply chain security, for example, and our ICT focus. So in the US, they maintain a list of companies that are deemed to pose an unacceptable risk to national security or the security and safety of US persons. And they've banned several companies on that list that is publicly available. 
so that each and every organization across government, but also critical infrastructure, understands that there is caution around using or procuring those particular services based on national security concerns. So we can look to adopt similar measures here where we publicly communicate supply chain risks to the broader ecosystem. Equally, source code. We've, you know, source code, you guys would know better than most, your audience would know better than most, that source code essentially is the keys to the kingdom. It's basically underpins how particular product works. And we've seen instances of countries implementing requirements to kind of hold or review source code as a condition to access their market where widespread source code disclosure can actually weaken security. So getting a sense of which particular companies have disclosed their source code, who have they disclosed it to, is something that the US have looked at and it's something equally we could look at here. And in terms of, from your perspective, Sarah, like with some of the outcomes we're likely to see from government with the cyber reform push that we've recently spoken about, but also, like you said, we've got the minister in cabinet now, which also means great things for the cybersecurity space, as well as, you know, people really on the pulse because they're closer, I would say, in terms of being in that cabinet to hopefully getting some of the outcomes that people have yearned for over the years in cyber. But is there any sort of I, you know, insights or any sort of theories that you'd like to touch on today of what we can sort of expect moving forward? We are at the moment looking at a couple of things at the national level. So the minister has announced that before this particular incident occurred, she announced that she was looking at the cybersecurity strategy and revising the 2020 cybersecurity strategy. So we expect to see some traction there, some consultation with industry and a new strategy released at some point. As I said before, we are expecting the Privacy Act to be reviewed, to check its fit for purpose, make sure that it's meeting community expectations around the management of data. That, I think, will be an important piece of work. And then more broadly, I think we will have kind of an annual review of the critical infrastructure reforms, how they're tracking, and once again, whether they are fit for purpose or whether we need to look at revising particular provisions there. And that will happen a year on from when that will pass. So there's a couple of things on the horizon that we should be expecting to come through following this particular brief, but more broadly, the government has said that they were interested in. So I'd like to sort of maybe just end with, you know, focusing on the consumer for a moment. I was speaking to someone yesterday on the weekend and the lady I was speaking to is an Optus customer and she made an interesting comment, which probably signaled to me, perhaps people aren't aware of what the fidelity of the data could be leveraged for. She's like, oh, driver's license, so what? Heaps of people have got my driver's license. I didn't say anything. I sort of just left it. But I was curious that quite a large number of Australians have been impacted by this breach. Do you still think that people don't know the impacts of this to them, perhaps? Yeah, I think it's definitely a tricky one if you first time been exposed to this kind of level of breach of understanding what the impacts might be. A couple of thoughts come up in response to your story. The first one is we do, and it's kind of important for all of us to have a look at what data we're giving up and why. You know, the question is really like, how important is it to give up your date of birth, full name, email address and phone number when you're buying hypothetically mascara in one of the department stores? So having a think about your everyday interactions and whether it's worth giving up or whether it's necessary to give up or whether you want to give up that particular personal information is something we should all be thinking about. Yes, it will be necessary in some circumstances to do that, to give up information, to validate who you are. But in some cases, 
it's asked about, asked from us in multiple interactions throughout the day and really just turning your mind to how important is it that I give up this data? What am I really missing out on if I don't give up this data? So kicking off some of those conversations and then of course, yes, raising the broader awareness and getting people to turn their mind to what this breach may mean to them as an individual. And as I said, the long lasting effects that a breach like this can have, it's not just going to be a risk that we have to wear for the next three months because the data is gone. So it's a, something we have to be mindful of in perpetuity as we manage our you know, data and our security and of our personal information online. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So just going back to your example that you used about the mascara, you're right. Do you think that though, if you look at someone that's not a security person or a privacy person, that they're just going to be like, you know what, I really want this mascara, so what, I'm just going to hand it over because I couldn't be bothered trying to call these people up, understand why they need to collect all this data. Do you think that will a lot of people will just fall victim for, you know, I just want it and I don't care and I'm prepared to give it away? Is that what's going to happen? I just don't know if if we look at Australia more broadly, enough people are actually going to maybe keep a, a retailer accountable and start questioning them on that front. Like I definitely welcome it, but I think I'm looking at it like through the eyes of not myself, but perhaps just an everyday person with no security background. So I'm just curious to know like how I think that people will just keep giving it away because they want it and they just couldn't be bothered calling up and creating like a, a problem and they'll just say, oh, well, yes, you make a great point on they don't need all this, but I want that mascara, so I'm just going to do whatever to get it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately it does come down to individual choice and that's up to everyone to weigh up. For some people, sure. But I think that does tie into the education and awareness piece. Industry has been calling for some time for some kind of national level campaign. You know, we talk about the slip slop slap of cyber creating a simple message that alerts people to the risks and then mitigations that people can take to manage those risks, whether it's as simple as back it up, patch it up, lock it up, something that's catchy, something that will stay in people's minds and help them remember cybersecurity principles. So it's both of those things. One, we need to do more to educate people around security and how they can secure their data and the value of their data. And two, we individually need to weigh it up and make up our own choices in this in this world. I mean, this sounds like a bit of a, a crazy out there question, but I'm just curious on, again, going back to the example, do you think the government will ever get to a stage where they're auditing every single company, be like, you don't need to ask for all this fidelity of data. You don't need that. And then as a result, like you get a penalty or you get a, a written warning to say you can't do that again. Because then maybe like if, I think a lot of people just don't even know. Like I think if you look at a retailer, I don't think they're thinking about that. They ask for your date of birth because they like to give you a birthday present on your birthday. I think that's why, but they're not thinking about, oh, I've actually got PII here. So do you think we'll ever get to a stage where like, you know, there is like government auditing, each single company is going to be hard, but definitely for like these these larger players to make sure like, hey, do you really need to be asking all of those questions? Do you really need to hold all of that data? It's not so much about what data we're collecting so much as how we're securing it and managing it and storing it. At an individual level, yes, there is a decision that you can make whether you want to disclose that information or whether you'd rather not. And and you know, we have to make those choices based off the scenarios and based off the necessity of taking or needing to collect that data. But at an organizational level and a government level, the emphasis really has to be on securing the data rather than necessarily, well, it has to be on both, looking at what data we're collecting, but also how we're securing it, how we're storing it. That's incredibly important, I think. 
So I interviewed two guys about the Optus breach. And yes, of course, if you're an Optus customer, they need to authenticate that I'm me, for example. So they need driver's license, everything like that. But okay, they store that information. So my question was like, why? Like after you authenticate it, like you don't need to keep my driver's license. And then really interesting point that was raised within the interview is, well, they should be, you know, leveraging third parties. So do you think that maybe it could be, okay, if you want to store that information, you should by policy have to leverage third parties or there needs to be something like that? Because I just think that people are going to collect it. They're probably not going to really think about, oh, am I securing this this data like appropriately? Some will, but I think a lot of them still don't have that awareness to know and to think like that. So I guess there are various reasons why information may be not only collected, but why, why it might be retained. In some cases, that to adhere to legislative requirements. So important that we're just mindful of that. When it comes to storing the data in the third party, I'm not, frankly, I'm not quite sure, but I think what we really do need to look at is creating that security culture, coming back to the kind of advice following this particular incident is, do you have a security culture? Do you invest appropriately in security? All these things. And we won't see the change at scale unless we create that. So I'm not sure if third parties is necessarily the answer there. But I do think that we need to have a stronger emphasis on creating that widespread security culture and investment. Yeah, most definitely. It's just getting people on like yourself, sharing your thoughts, sharing your insights and seeing like what we can come up with. I don't think it's an easy thing to answer as well. It's not a silver bullet. It's not as straightforward as we'd like it to be. But again, it's having these conversations and letting people hear your thoughts on maybe something different that you can add to to the repertoire of how people are thinking about these problems. So I really appreciate your time today, Sarah, for sharing your insights and your thoughts. And I can't wait to do another interview with you to talk on public policy and all things government. No worries. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media the voice of cyber.